0: The brain on dopamine looks like a huge, eclectic, beautiful light bulb with lots of connecting areas between the brain and a happy, green brain.
1: I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Dr Brendan Stubbs is a world-leading exercise and mental health scientist who has published over 700 papers. Ranked as one of the world's leading researchers into movement and mental health, Dr. Stubb's research focuses on understanding and improving physical and mental health of people with mental illness. So what exactly is going on inside your brain when you exercise and how can you improve your mental health?
0: So when we engage in exercise, so much is happening in our brain. The brain is very much like the muscle, but much more complex. It's very much if you you know, if you know don't use it, you lose it. You don't quite lose it as if you don't lose muscles, but they change in order in size.
1: In this episode, we touch upon Brendan's latest research, which he reveals how exercise is scientifically proven to make you smarter. I think many of my listeners, and myself included, have experienced those days of brain fog or feeling quite sluggish. But then in contrast, we've also had those days of incredible clarity and euphoria after a good workout. For instance, this morning I went for a run and obviously had to do that to prep for this interview. And many describe that as a natural high and I definitely felt that. So I wanted to kind of start off and kick off this whole conversation on, can you shed some light on what's happening in our brains as we engage in exercise?
0: So, when we engage in exercise, so much is happening in our brain. You know, I could spend all of the time that we've got talking about the complexities within the brain, but the brain, you know, as you and your listeners will know, is like a living organism and it's the sort of powerhouse and the central place where all of the automatic functions happen for us and all of the sort of planned functions have such like the motivational areas of the brain the learning areas of the brain and all of the sort of background autonomic factors too so as soon as we start engaging in exercise whether it be like you know basically aerobic or strength related work lots of areas within the brain are getting sort of lit up and what do i mean by sort of lit up in sort of scientific terms is we're getting stimulation of you know nerve cells within the brain lighting up and you're getting key areas within the brain talking to each other and connecting those key areas within the brain or different nerve cells with synapses and the brain is very much like the muscle but much more complex it's very much if you you know if you don't use it you lose it you don't quite lose it as if you don't lose muscles but they change in order in size so hopefully I've conveyed that lots happens immediately and lots happens over time which is really exciting as well because not only does our brain change when we're you know exercising but also it helps you know grow and expand care is are really important for brain health too.
1: Wow well, I mean where do I follow that it's kind of I mean there's so many different areas when we kind of segregate what you just spoke about i mean we can think about it and you've done a lot of work within this area on kind of like treatment for depression or looking at actually when people really suffer with ill mental health but also on the preventative side as well like what can we also do to help support our mental health before we get there and you just went through the whole range of factors before we kind of like get into that a little bit deeper And also mentioning that it could make us smarter. And by the way, I watched your documentary last night on Amazon Prime all around the study that you conducted on this sector, which I really wanna talk about. My listeners are probably thinking, okay, well, how much exercise do I need to do? And if we look at public health guidelines, it's recommended to move your body around 30 minutes a day. What do we know from science, especially from your science, how much research you've done in this area what's kind of the average daily limit that people need to be engaging in to get that uplift of that kind of feel good mood sensation that you just spoke about or that lighting up of neurons in the brain
0: so i think this is really you know exciting for people is um, we tend to see the mental health and the brain health benefits on like what we call a dose-response relationship. So the more that we do, the better we feel, or the better we have a mental health and brain health response. Up to sort of 150, you know, sometimes up to 300 minutes. But you tend to see benefits, you know, going much more at the start and then plateauing as you go up to those upper thresholds over the course of a week. So 150 minutes, or up to 300 minutes per week of moderate or vigorous intensity exercise is what is recommended and that's quite a scary number for people who may not traditionally consider themselves as an exerciser or someone who's sporty and the great news is for those people is we tend to see the best dose response relationship for people who are not doing much exercise or sport or physical activity so if you're not someone that does a lot at the moment it's the great news you will experience the greatest brain health and uplift benefits in the fir- in the first instance if you're not moving and then if you keep moving this like we, you know, we talked about, use it or lose it, then you'll continue to accrue the benefits up to 150 to 300 minutes. So that's over the course of a week. And if we look at like a single bout or a single episode of sort of raised heart rate exercise or aerobic exercise or strength work, we generally recommend that there's at least five or 10 minutes per bout. And then we tend to see real sort of benefits in terms of lighting up of the structures within the brain or the release of key neurotransmitters, which leave a sort of prolonged you know, evidence for the, you know, for some time afterwards and then build up over time to have brain and emotional health benefits.
1: Amazing. Okay. And then you just mentioned there are two different types of exercise. And I think something that I've become way more observant of especially since I had a DEXA scan to see where my bone mass was and 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 how strong am I and I realized I really need to work more on strength than less running and kind of bringing in more strength training to really kind of support my bone structure and my muscles but when we're looking at resistance training or we're looking at aerobic exercise such as running how should we be looking at these differently in terms of our brain health and mental health because they do have quite different effects don't they? overall they do
0: i mean most of the research and the focus within sort of research policy and popular culture has been really focusing on on aerobic exercise and by that we mean that exercise where or physical activity where you're getting your heart rate up and you're sort of breathing sort of harder and you know your heart rate is racing up and sort of resistance training is generally where you're moving your body against itself or another resistance so you're really focusing on your muscles and of course, if you do resistance training over time, then also your heart rate goes up. So you have a combination, they're not completely discrete from each other, they often co-occur. Together, you know, it's been the last ten years or so where we've really focused on the sort of research evidence for resistance training generally for physical health, but particularly for mental health. And just for guidelines before I talk about benefits, is it's only sort of again been the last ten years where it's recommended that not only do 150 to 300 minutes of moderate or vigorous activity, but we should all do two days of strength training. Per week, in recognition of the multitude of benefits for us, aerobic training is—is—you is, know—we know that's very good for our heart. We know it's very good for our metabolic health, and we know that our metabolic health is very related to our brain health. And when we do aerobic training, is we see you know, like a—you a, know—an acute. Sort of shock happening within the brain in terms of like a good shock and a, a release of key neurotransmitters and stimulations within you know the hippocampus for instance is, is primarily targeted the anterior cingulate cortex which i mentioned previously and general sort of brain health whereas resistance training we're starting to see that you know it can have you know wide benefits for overall brain health but it can also reduce the risk of things what we call white matter hyper intensities and these are just sort of like some, you know, in simple terms of like scarring or a bit of wear and tear within the brain, which is just a bit of sign of brain ageing. And we think that resistance training from some of the work we've done in the UK Biobank is particularly good for reducing the risk or the buildup of these white matter hyperintensities over time.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm just writing that down because white matter I think I've been reading a lot about recently. I mentioned in the beginning, obviously you've done so much research in this area and one that really drew my attention when I was kind of looking at today's things we're going to talk about which was very hard to narrow down was if exercise can actually make us smarter and I know that you carried out a trial with ASIC recently and it was on Amazon Prime and I found this really really fascinating actually looking at how can exercise help support our cognitive functioning and maybe reduce cognitive declines can you talk a little bit about the trial that you did and the outcome because there was actually a real significant benefit that you found which i found really interesting and how did it matter in terms of resistance training versus aerobic exercise
0: we've known sort of generally that 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 exercise is very good for your brain health and you know people for instance who do exercise in the morning or continue to exercise tend to feel sort of sharper um sort of have better clarity of thought throughout the day and you know sort of able to sort of problem solve etc more clearly you know it's kind of like kick-starting your brain in the morning for instance or, or doing it later on in the day because it's It's really sort of like a a good exercise for the brain. So, you know, but of course it's not mutually exclusive. Some people who don't engage in regular exercise or physical activity have equally good sort of brain function. But for those, you know, who do it, you tend to see this, you know, boost for people. But we were really interested in the particular of this Mind Games uh, documentary is what happens to people who never exercise and what happens to people who are functioning sort of at a really high cognitive level. So we included within this context of people who weren't engaged in regular exercise for at least the previous six months, and who were sort of functioning really well within a specific mind game, such as chess. Um, like we had some speed cubers and then some like esports players as well. And we wanted to see, you know, if these exceptional people who were all competing at least at a national and most at an international level from over twenty. One countries around the world, if we gave people a structured, personalized exercise program over four months, introducing people to exercise for the first time, many forever, you know, since they're a child, what, what could we do for their cognitive function? We measured cognitive function through various objective cognitive tests. And essentially what we found is great global improvements from when we started to when we finished over four months for people and in various sort of improvements in various subdomains such as problem solving, know, reaction times and, um, so we see some really beneficial improvements, but people also had, you know, much more improvements in well-being, you know, in the calmness, confidence, less anxiety, and many of these other factors too. So we were able to sort of demonstrate that yes, you can, you know, sharpen the brightest minds with exercise.
1: I need to let you in on a health secret that I absolutely swear by and I've got a special discount code just for you guys. What I love is that it's been developed by a team of biochemists who truly know what they're talking about and most importantly they have the evidence to back it up. I'm using a natural mushroom powder every day to keep my immune system strong and also my focus engaged. And what I love is how many of you have tried Bloomin' since I've started to mention them on this show. And I've heard so much amazing feedback, how it's helped you stay focused and also relaxed. Now, they've got four blends to choose from, but one I think that you definitely need this autumn is the Rescue Blend, which helps to support your immune system, but in a natural way. It contains chaga mushroom, which is one of the most antioxidant rich foods on the planet. One teaspoon has around the same antioxidants as 500 blueberries. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mushrooms, no, they don't get you high and they don't taste of mushrooms. They're just full of the good stuff. Bloomer's products are also, most importantly, double extracted, meaning that you'll get 10 grams of dried mushrooms in just one gram of extract powder, twice. Absolutely maximizing these health benefits. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEATAUTUM. That's B-E-A-T, Autumn, which will give you two jars of rescue for the price of one. Get that strong immune defense this autumn and you can even share it with a friend. Find the link to Bloomin' in the show notes. What I found crazy was the stat, that the mind game is cognitive functional was also boosted on average by 10%. I mean, that's quite... a a large benefit if you think about it and people who are listening to this i'm sure that you know lots of my listeners engage in quite a lot of physical activity but do you think this will still be quite beneficial for those who maybe are exercising i think it's something that obviously these people this kind of cohort that you studied as you said weren't engaging in exercise so we're probably seeing a real uplift but actually it's showing that you're know, getting away from your desk or trying to engage in that morning's exercise is actually really important for High performers or individuals that do actually have quite an an intense job because sometimes I think we might put that as the last thing that's important to our work but actually what I'm kind of reading from your research is actually it's really important to try and make time for this.
0: it's kind of like for people who are already functioning at a very high level perhaps people who are functioning very high level you know at work or in in other areas it's just like the best mot that you can give your brain and your function it really helps you sort of declutter within your brain helps sort of things organize and within the brain and almost like a release valve we're on sort of high alert within our jobs or roles you know responsibilities busy lives then exercise is is really like a de-stressing mechanism for the brain and helps sort of turn the gas down and turn the volume down for people who are very sort of high functioning and just release at the end of exercise and just helps everything come down, decompress, you know, and sort of sort and file everything out within the brain because we need to sort of make sense of everything that's happening uh, within the brain. So yes, it can improve function and yes, it can help improve relaxation. We all want to maximize brain health over the course of our lives. Um, And we know from like, like Lancet Global dementia reports and other things is that physical activity and exercises is one of the key modifiable risk factors to preserve lifelong brain health. And, you know, this is really important that we're sort of doing this across the lifespan because yes, we want to function really well today. We want to you know, have great attention, great focus. We want to be our best. And we know that the brain and how we feel is variable. But on average, if we keep doing that, on average, we will be better. But yes, we want to preserve our brain function for more than the future. And the time to maximize our brain function for tomorrow or down the line is today. And so sort of one of the interesting trials that we're doing at the moment is looking at people who you know, are 45 to 60 who don't have any objective cognitive deficits. So if we do objective tests and test people's cognition, we don't find any deficit but they are starting to have, you know, starting to feel some sort of like brain fog or self-report that they're not quite as sharp as they once were. And we know that if we want to preserve cognitive, we want to turn this around so it doesn't become an objective deficit. The time to do that is when people are just starting to report some symptoms. And we, we, we're doing that in a randomized trial with uh, aerobic and resistance training at King's. And we're looking at can we stimulate you know, hippocampus neurogenesis and then we're looking at the role of the gut microbiome and stool samples with that too. And I think that's one of the exciting studies that we're doing also.
1: My gosh, that's so exciting. When, How long is that study going on for? I need to already schedule you to come back in and talk about it.
0: So we're up and running with the with the, with the recruitment. We're going to be recruiting over 100 people. Um, we've been recruiting f- and getting people in intervention for 18 months. And we're going to be finishing about halfway through next year.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because you really touched on something there that I'm very passionate about. And as a nutritionist, talk about a lot, which is the gut microbiome. And there's this kind of like two sides of the conversation. You know, if you're feeling well and you're feeling positive about life, you're way more likely to go and exercise, right? You're way more likely to have that positive thought process that you want to do something to help yourself to, to feel good and to get that high. When you're also suffering as maybe poorer mental health, having that get up and go or those moments where you feel very deflated in yourself can be really, really hard and a real barrier to getting on your trainers and, and simply getting out, even if that's for a walk. So in our listeners moments where they may be having that kind of those lower moments where they may be suffering with their mental health and they're listening to this thinking, well, this all sounds great, but trying to get those trainers on to make that first move feels like a real barrier. What's your kind of first suggestions here to get people's minds moving and, and thoughts processing to get people more active in this area if they don't feel they've got the confidence or the energy to do so?
0: It's a great point, And it's one of the cruel conundrums around, you know, all of this is that we are probably when we most need this is when it's most difficult. And we experience the most sort of benefits as well. And if we are struggling with our mental health or feeling low, flat, tired, it's the many symptoms that we're experiencing such as tiredness, brain fog, lethargy, which would really benefit from exercise, but it's different like a chicken and egg situation is cruel conundrum. So first and foremost is I know what that feels like. I know that's really difficult. And I think the thing that's really helped me in addition to knowing a lot around the science and behavior changes, is knowing that it's, it's it's much more important to try and be consistent with something you're able to do than to sort of focus on doing, you know, good times, lifting heavy amounts of weights, you know, it's just, or, or, you know, going at a certain pace, because it becomes much more achievable. I found this really helpful in my own life where I've just been feeling not particularly great for a whole number of different reasons. That so if I just am able to commit to having some consistency, and sometimes you know I really have a bit of a struggle, I just say I'm just going to go out for ten. I'm just going to for ten minutes. I'm not going to take on any sort of smart devices to measure what I'm doing. I'm just going to get my heart rate going. And I've had a period recently, for about six weeks, where I've had a bit of a a, a bit of a shoulder injury, so I've not been doing the upper limb weights. It's been hard for me to have any uh, like feel like I'm really training very hard. I've just accepted that that's okay, but I've just kept doing stuff which which I could do at a low level. You know, lifting weights less than 50% of the weight that I could running at half the pace that I can do because I've just not been feeling great. But I know that it's good for me to keep in the behavior, to keep the consistency. And now I'm feeling a lot better my shoulder's feeling much better and I'm able to start reintroducing this because exercise and physical activity is a lifelong effort to really have such a wide range of mental and physical health and brain health benefits that we want to keep in the game. And it's much more important to keep in the game than to keep worrying about being fast, hard or looking at a certain way.
1: I know it's so hard, isn't it? When you look online and you're seeing everyone else kind of getting on with their exercise in a very easy way or what, what seems to be a very easy way. I know that you met uh, Novak Djokovic recently and spoke to him about your research. How was that? Because he's kind of the man at the top of his game. And I can imagine he has intense pressure around performance and his mental health. So how did that conversation go down with him?
0: amazing he's at the top of his game at the peak and it's really interesting because i spent a lot of time around some of the tennis players this summer and some tournaments previously the elite players and if you look at the sort of physical capabilities the speed the reaction times the fitness there's not miss tiny, tiny margins that are different between the sort of top f- female and male players. But when you sort of get into the crux of the matches, you see the same players consistently going, winning over again. Novak Djokovic being a great example. And really it's that sort of mental edge and that sort of confidence uh, and sort of that inner battle or mind control. Which really, you know, does separate the amazing players from, you know, the absolute legend. So it's great to hear some of his insights around that and how seriously he takes all of this stuff we're talking around in terms of, you know, looking after his mind, looking after his body, starting the day with mindfulness, meditation, and just really looking at his whole body as one. Um, so it was amazing. And he really just spoke very much about the benefits of mind body and how important sound, mind and sound body is. So exceptional person.
1: He is exceptional. And I guess he's he's a really interesting kind of as a case study, but person to kind of observe on how incredibly seriously he takes his diet as well as his exercise. And obviously you've just mentioned you're doing the study at Kings, which is looking at the gut microbiome and also kind of exercise output as well with brain functioning. What do you see in this area as I think it's really important that when we're talking about exercise, it's also really important to also focus on our, our diet as well. Because these two things do go hand in hand. And do you see this a lot reflected through research or trials or are coming up on and kind of what I'd love to know what your thoughts are in this kind of intersection as well
0: yeah so I think it's like within all of this if we put these behaviors under the umbrella of lifestyle approaches you know like people looking after their sleep or people wanting to eat better more nutritious foods people wanting to get you know physical activity and exercise we know what I tend to find is working sort of from a clinician and working with people who want to improve their physical and mental health in research and also a lot of the policy work that I've done is that once people start to focus on one particular area, is people become very interested in other areas too, which is great. So you see this ripple effect. So many of the people I've worked with traditionally have really, you know, struggle with their mental health, you know, maybe hearing voices, extremely paranoid, Having amazing results from physical activity and exercise, and also struggling with the side effects of medication, but really wanting to then become, uh, you know, massively interested in what they're, uh, you know, eating also, and having this ripple effect to say these medications make me feel really tired in the morning. So I'm trying to get to bed earlier and have more energy in the morning. So we tend to see in research from people who, you know, are struggling with, you know, just low mood to sort of at the more severe end scale where people may be in hospital. I've done a lot of work, and I think anything that you do you know, collaboratively has a more profound effect. And we've done lots of our research showing, you know, when you add these different lifestyle factors together, such as reducing the use of you know, harmful substances, you know, such as smoking tobacco, the use of illicit substances, alcohol, you add in increasing your physical activity, you add in eating more nutritious food, you add in your sleep, is you just see this compounding collective effect for improving mental health and brain health too so undoubtedly you have a a different impact on on, on each of these when they come together but i think it's important if you're trying to do one is trying to get into a good habit with that i encourage people before sort of trying to crack everything
1: it's honestly it's so important to talk about the intersection for all of these things because obviously a poor night's sleep is going to make you feel more exhausted which means you're going to grab towards those more high carbohydrate refined foods and then you're not really going to want to go in exercise because you're exhausted. So it is it is really important to talk about this kind of intersection of, of all of these pillars. But you mentioned something there that you have focused so much upon. And get me if I'm right, 700 published papers, Brendan, am I right there? Is that correct? Or well, maybe it's more now. It's hard to keep track. Every time I kind of look at you online, there's kind of more numbers to add. So I'm <laughs> trying to make sure if I've got the exact number but you've really pioneered this field of treatment
0: yeah so I had a quite a misspent youth, and yeah I mean I got really interested in the area in terms of f- focusing on physical activity exercise a bit around some of the areas too lifestyle more generally and, and a big group of us really wanted to start to improve the credibility of the of the field and we knew that we could do that through doing robust science and research so collectively myself and many people at King's and other universities thought we want to apply the best scientific methods in the context of psychiatry and brain health to demonstrate that this is not wishy washy science, but this is credible science that should form, you know, key part of policies, you know, and documents. So we've seen, you know, huge changes within the treatment of depression, for instance, where it's now, you know, widely recommended that people, you know, have uh, interventions uh, you know including exercise and nutritional changes and and we've done quite a lot of work to you know, build the research case for that and influence policy too.
1: It's amazing and like honestly biggest congratulations to you to really getting kind of that scientific robust evidence across the line because it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about and it's amazing to see you know you have dedicated so much of your time here and what I really want to like highlight what you have found here like where is it that if you are suffering with a mental health condition, and you mentioned a few just there, such as schizophrenia, depression seems like quite a large one. It's one of the most common mental health conditions within the UK alongside anxiety. Where is the treatment program sat here at the moment for mental health conditions? And do you have, and I know you, well, I know you have some, I'm hoping you mention mentioned it, but kind of some really interesting results on in just how it does impact the brain, and how it can change the brain um, when we do look at this quite seriously
0: if i just sort of summarize the key areas in sort of the in the prevention and the management first so we've we've done quite a lot of work looking at what is the role of physical activity and exercise in the prevention of the onset of anxiety and depression we've done this in young people in millennium cohort study and the avon longitudinal study so looking at sort of 12 to 16 year olds and how there are changes in their physical activity levels in the incident of new cases of depression And we've done it right through the age span and we've done it all over the world. Just trying to understand the question relatively simply, you know, is there a relationship between how active you are and your risk of new cases of depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, or one of those conditions in the future? And, And what we've consistently found is that when you adjust in an observational study for lots of other things that could account for that, um, we consistently see that high levels of physical activity and lower levels of sedentary behaviour are, are are buffers against the onset of those new conditions. And we also see, um, we've done some good, what we call substitutional analyses, where we've shown in young people, in the Avon longitudinal study in a paper in the Lancet Psychiatry, where we demonstrated that you could reduce the onset of new cases of depression or anxiety in young people by 10% if, if they replaced uh, an hour a day of sedentary behaviour with being uh, physically active. And, you know, that is something which we would all like people to sort of, you know, move towards to recognise that this is important. And what adds strength to this observational data, and we've done it all over the world with hundreds of thousands of people, is some of the genetic work that we've done also. This is called an analysis called Mendelian randomization studies, where we look at known genetic markers for these conditions, including... You know, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, eating disorders. We had a paper out in, in molecular psychiatry earlier this year. And essentially what you're doing is you're looking at what we call causal pathways. So pathways where there is um, you know, a known causal framework and you look between an exposure, in this case, objective physical activity and sedentary behavior and an outcome which is one of these particular conditions and through a sophisticated analysis. And what we found is there is a causal pathway to back up this observational research between high levels of physical activity and reduced risk of anxiety, stress-related conditions, depression, and possibly uh, you know some other conditions. And interestingly, we found the converse was true that within eating disorders, for instance, is there may be some sort of evidence uh, on a causal path would be high levels of physical activity and a potential uh, increased risk of certain eating disorders in young people.
1: So the more physical activity, the higher the risk. Am I getting that right?
0: Yeah, the more physical activity, the higher the risk. No, of course not for all people, but this is for people who are genetically predisposed. So that's what we've been able to sort of find from some of the observational data uh, too. And I think one of the interesting studies which we're involved in is we looked at 30,000 people um, who were all genetically predisposed to have depression. So they all had genetic weighting, uh, equal weighting for depression. And what we did is we looked over time, we looked at the start, how physically active they were, and then of those genetically high-risk people, who converted to having depression in the future? And what we found is that although all of these people had equal genetic weighting, those who were more physically active were less likely to develop depression in the future compared to those... Who uh, were less active. So genes do not necessarily determine your risk, but physically active can be a really important modifiable factor that can influence, you know, the life course of these important conditions.
1: Wow, I mean that is so fascinating. Because on one end of the spectrum, if you've got a genetic risk for an eating disorder, we know that higher <laughs> physical activity can actually escalate that. But on the flip side, if you've got a genetic risk of depression, high physical activity will lower that. So just kind of thinking there for my, my audience who might be going well how do i know if i've got a genetic risk is this something that you would advocate people to look into to actually try to take more modifiable risk factors at looking at this and if so how can they do that that's evidence based or that we know is actually correct and not a not a misleading study that's bought online
0: yeah so i would listen to evidence based podcasts where researchers uh, you know and other people are having informed discussions about research because there's lots of noise about you know research or studies and there's lots of sound bites i would listen to people who are having sort of key informed discussions and balanced discussions around research and evidence and application because one research never tells a whole story we look for collections and consistency in research over time because the story can change and wherever we've got replicated findings so findings that are consistently repeated we have increasing confidence and in many cases when we do one study in research more generally is we're We're always a bit sceptical because we see this phenomenon in science where you look at a new research question or a new intervention and you see large, large effects initially. And then what you tend to see is it's reduced over time. So I would look for people having informed, balanced discussions and I would just continue to be healthily sceptical.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes for anything. I think regarding health, mental health, physical health. But for anyone that's listening to this thinking, well, how do I know if I've got genetic risk? What would you advise there?
0: When we consider this is really a sort of emerging science. So this is not something that you could go to a GP and say, can you test for gene XYZ to see if I'm at risk for depression, anxiety, and eating disorder, etc.? What you're seeing in this case in the studies that I'm describing is huge geneticist consortiums that come together. And they, you know, identify leading genes for people who have these specific conditions. So people who, you know, graciously give up their time for research, they will often go and undergo, uh, you know, extensive testing and they'll be able to identify what are some common genes that we see within people with an eating disorder, within people with schizophrenia, within people with depression. And then, you know, can we see the replication of these individual genes and there are loads of genes in these conditions and then once these have been identified and agreed within these global consortia then um, you will have replication of studies to say okay these genes are associated with this particular condition can we then look at what are some risk factors that could influence the onset of these conditions so this is sort of really sort of emerging sites and not something which is available in sort of clinical practice or where you can just pop to your gp or go down to your local supermarket and get a test to see if you're at risk of these individual conditions so it's emerging uh, science at the moment.
1: I just think it's so important to state that. I don't want people to start Googling and trying to buy some tests, um, which could find them to be very misled. So I think that's just really important that we kind of cite that. But so interesting about these causal pathways and actually what you have found. And I think it leads me on to, you know, I'm so happy that we spoke about that preventative side of, of exercise, but looking at the other side where, you know, approximately one in four people in the UK experience a mental health problem each year. One in six people report experiencing a common mental health problem like anxiety and depression in any given week. And 17.9 million people occur sick days from mental health concerns each year, which is a huge problem for the workplace and mental health. So when we think about this, and you know, when I was doing a lot of research for this conversation, I was looking at a lot of your um, research, which kind of shown um, changes in the brain that can occur when and people who are suffering with mental health, engage in exercise. And and I saw that you cited a study, now I might get his name wrong, um, but Matt Halligren, which has studied more than 300 people with major depressive disorder using a three-armed RCT. And what they found is that exercise and CBT were just as effective as each other in terms of reducing depressive symptoms. So when we kind of hear stats like that, and I really would love you to share yours as well, and we can understand like, you know, these, these, these kind of lights up changes that are happening within the brain, whether it's you know, the different areas of the brain that you mentioned in the beginning i think it's really important to kind of say how is this different in the terms of what we are executing as treatment plans in this space and i say that because we had a uh, professor felice Jackeron recently who obviously conducted the incredible smiles trial um a few years ago looking at depression of food and when she looked at the modifiable diet from the mediterranean diet that she gave to people it was much more um, increase in the quantity and the quality of that food than we do advocate for the general mediterranean diet. So I wanted to see here like when we are looking at treatment plans what does this look like for people that are suffering with these mental health conditions and how much more is it kind of ramped up?
0: Yeah, so it's a great point. So just so just to say that when we're looking at treatment is you know we've we've really you know got good evidence now that this should be part of treatment we have some good treatments to help people who are struggling with depression and anxiety you know some people will benefit somewhat from a medication in some circumstances not everyone will respond to a medication i mean a medication can have side effects and that's an informed discussion ease have with a medical practitioner some people will benefit from you know talking therapies you know and that is really important for some people not everyone will be experienced benefits from talking therapies at all times and then, if we look at like lifestyle changes, you'd have talked with Felice about nutritional interventions or, or physical activity. Is this can help for some people at some times, um, and we know that it is safe for people, for you know almost all people to do as well for our physical and also our mm. mental health. And it's in you know guidelines which we have done. So we've written European psychiatric guidelines recommending it. So you know it's a first line option for people within the uk we've got the nice guidelines and it's recommended as first line treatment for people um, and you mentioned matt matt's holgen's trial um, which is a 12-month randomized controlled trial which just shows that talking therapy cbt and exercise are just as good at improving mental health and much better than treatment as usual and we not many people would disagree that talking therapy cbt is not good for mental health and another interesting trial which came out recently compared running um, in, a, in a randomized trial versus, uh, you know, antidepressant medication. And what they found is running three times a week was uh, broadly just as effective in improving mental health symptoms as the antidepressant medication for people in the Netherlands who are having depressive symptoms. The physical health benefits from running were much better because we know that antidepressant medication is really important. Many people have, you know, favourable outcomes, but, you know, there are side effects, for instance, cardiometabolic changes, people that may have increased weight, waist circumference, and that's quite distressing for some people. And you don't see those with exercise. And you saw sort of an equivalent mental health outcomes when you compare these two together but much better physical health outcomes too. So this really goes to add credibility that, you know, exercise is, we're not saying anything should be replaced. We're saying it can be just as good as talking therapy and it can be, you know, equivalent to medication. And really on the ground, when you're working with your clinician or the person who may be working with you, these should all be viewed as part of the menu of options for people. Uh, And often people may have different parts of the menu, such as, you know, changing nutrition, working on their sleep, improving their exercise, they may have talking therapy as well. And in research terms, we often tend to look at one thing and that's why we hear stories or people talking about exercise or therapy or CBT or nutritional interventions. The reality is many of these things would work greatly together and would have that additive benefit than if we considered them just in isolation. In research, we often talk about them in isolation, but in the reality in practice, you know, people tend to respond better when they're looking at several different things.
1: I think it's one of the key takeaways we talk about on this show, actually, is actually kind of the intersection between all of these. They all play such big factors. And actually, you know, even having Dan Butner on here, which was obviously a lot more epidemiological research, kind of looking at these areas around the world of these five blue zones. But, you know, all of it was kind of very determined to the environment. And I think we forget about that so much when we're looking at kind of the health interventions that we play or we're putting a lot of shame into ourselves. And so much about it is, is the environment that we're kind of creating for ourselves or that we actually have access to that is such a big predetermined to the outcome that we get. And thinking kind of about this, from these studies, what do you feel is, I mean, I know it's very individualized, so it might be very hard for you to answer this, but is it kind of a more aggressive Movement, exercise routine, care how I use the wording in this for people with depression, or is it very kind of on the same similar terms of the preventative side? Is it kind of any different in how we look at this? Whether is it more resistant? Is it more aerobic? Is it is there more time dedicated to that, or is it actually very similar to how we're looking at it on the preventative side as well?
0: So I've worked with people in hospital who are very unwell with depression, and you know I've worked with people in the community who have been very unwell with depression. You know I think the key thing is to remember is you know, often people may not be engaging in exercise and physical activity for some time. It's really important that when we're starting or restarting is we feel that we can do this and doing huge, effortful, intense tasks for most people in those instances will just feel too overwhelming and I can't do, it's too difficult. I can't even start. So I won't even get up out of bed in those instances. So I think particularly when we're first re-engaging within this, it's really important to start light and it's really important to start small amounts and it's much better to sort of build that up consistently over time than thinking i must do 30 minutes a day and it must be you know a high intensity or I must lift a certain amount of weights. You know, it's just those small wins that build up confidence and build up that self-belief and self-efficacy that, yes, I can do this. And then you can start to sort of, you know, once you build up a bit of consistency, start to think about, do I want to sort of go, you know, perhaps a little bit more intense with my heart rate? Do I want to sort of go and add in some weight training, if you like that? But the key thing is just getting started and then also in building in something where you're likely to feel sort of supported, you can achieve this and then add in a bit of fun, um, which can come over time.
1: That's quite key, isn't it? It's really key. And I think something that I really wanted to mention kind of on the brain side of things is that you've mentioned the hippocampus there in the beginning. And I just want to talk about this because I know that obviously within people that really suffer with with depression or, or mental illness, this can be reduced in many people. So can you talk about how exercise can help with the hippocampus and what you have seen from the trials and the research studies that you've done and actually why is the hippocampus so essential because we're kind of mentioning these terms but people might have heard of them but not actually kind of realize the point or what they do so if you could explain a little bit about that and might give some context to our listeners on just like how powerful exercise can sure. be Sure
0: so yeah the hippocampus is a you know important part within the sort of deep mid 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 brain and it has many different functions for people but you know as we mentioned earlier this is important because when we look at people with depression anxiety schizophrenia dementia this is consistently reduced so when we look at those people with those conditions we you know we take notice because this is an area that's consistently reduced and if we look at what is the function of this area of the brain is, you know, it's involved in a number of different things, but in the most simple terms, it's really important for memory and consolidation of memory. So turning short-term memories to long-term memories, it's also really important for emotional processing, you know, and other things such as, you know, cognitive and executive function. So being able to sort of, you know, think clearly, to plan and just to sort of organize ourselves within our thoughts. So it's a really important area within the brain. And what we've sort of seen is when we look at the brain scans of people with depression is this area is reduced, but interestingly, it's not reduced for all people with these conditions. So we've looked at like the cardiorespiratory fitness, so a measure of how fit people's heart and lungs are when they respond to an exercise test and we've shown that even if you do have depression if you have higher levels of fitness is you tend to have a large area of the hippocampus when we take you know a snapshot of people at one particular time and also if we look at muscle strength and we've talked to bit about resistance training but also the, you know people who are stronger tend to have this area larger within the brain which tends to indicate if we look at a snapshot you know can this be part of a treatment and the brain respond to this over time so we've done studies in, in in a journal called NeuroImage, where we've looked particularly at running or aerobic type exercise and we've been able to show that like an eight to ten week period that you can actually increase the area of the hippocampus so if we do repeated measures or at least before and after with magnetic resonance imaging scanner you can yes you can get a volume etric or an increase in the size of the hippocampus which again, when I reflect that this is reduced in most people with depression and other conditions, this is exciting. This that we can change the size of this area within the brain, um, which is just really exciting. But also, if we look at you know single bouts of exercise as well, you know we see stimulation within this area of the brain if we just look at you know a single bout of exercise too.
1: Yeah, I mean, all right, now I feel even better for going for my run this morning. <laughs> That actually this over time can actually and it's just amazing to see, or to not see, just to hear the understanding. Cause I think sometimes when we're just saying, you know, exercise is good or movement is good, actually knowing and seeing this research where actually, you know, changes in the hippocampus are growing, it's it's way more ensuring, but also it kind of gives you the aspect of like, no, this is actually making a difference. It's not just somebody telling me this is. I actually can see from research that this is having a, a physical effect within my brain which I find really fascinating. So it comes on to me to kind of say, what would be your three top tips to people who are listening to this from kind of all the things that we've spoken about and touched upon from the preventative side to the treatment side and also getting smarter. I mean, I feel like we touched upon that at the beginning, but also that's a huge encouragement for many people, especially for me when I read that that study. That was something that I really engage with what are the three things that you would say to people to help kind of work on this and more as a lifestyle factor and the three things that you should really be focusing on whether it's time whether it's exercise whether it's consistency what are the three things that you would like lay out as a framework
0: this is for all people is i would say that the that, that physical activity exercise is is something where we want to work our bodies and is available for all people so it's not a case of you know i consider myself a gym person or a sporty person we're talking about moving our body we're increasing energy expenditure and we're you know keeping our body strong and this is something which we should all be focusing on it should be yeah, all of us, where we want to keep our heart and lungs fit, we want to keep our body strong. So it's not about being a sporty person, not about being an exerciser or a gym goer. If that's your thing, absolutely amazing. But if it's not, and you know, not everybody considers themselves that, then go and find a movement you enjoy and you will experience the mental health benefits and the body benefits too so don't let the sort of terms or beliefs that i and many other people have make this thing this is not relevant for you so find a movement that you you know find a movement and you they're going to go on to benefit from it the next thing that's sort of closely linked to that is find something that you enjoy don't be swayed by the latest trend what you're reading online don't be swayed by what you think that you should be doing It really is about finding a movement that you find, you know, you enjoy. Perhaps you find it a bit of a challenge and that's much more likely to make you to keep going because if you enjoy something, you're more likely to go back. If you find it's a challenge and a challenge could mean different things for different people, then you're also much more likely to go back. And that element of social connection is also an important thing for some people to get the mental health benefits, but also that sense of community to keep coming back. Not for all people, but it can be. That can be walking groups. That could be a regular, you know, gym or yoga class. And those things tend to keep you in the game and tend to keep you accruing the benefits. And sort of closely linked to that and which I've tried to convey within all of this is, you know, physical activity and exercise is something that we want to engage in as a lifelong process. If we want to experience the physical mental health benefits is, you know, we don't want to do a crash and burn four week, you know, high intensity course where you do four weeks and you don't exercise or engage in physical activity for, you know, the rest of the year and then maybe next year or you know, another four weeks. Really want to build, you know, sustainable, healthy um, habits where you can continue to keep, you know, oiling your body and keeping your muscles bone strong and also improving your brain health. So really, you know, it's, well, the first point to capture is well, the first one is about inclusion, you know, and finding yeah. an activity that you find your body moves. And the next one is finding a movement that you enjoy and the next thing is consistency over time is really important to keep us all going because we want a lifelong relationship. It doesn't need to be that you need to hit your personal best every week. Uh, you need to lift more, you need to run further, faster. If that's your thing, fine. But it's much more important to keep going and be consistent over time.
1: I'm so happy that we've teamed up Blue In for this season of the podcast. Try their natural mushroom powder today to defend and support your immune system this autumn. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEAT, B-E-A-T, autumn, to get two jars of mushroom powder for the price of one. There is a link in the show notes. I love how you kind of like put those into three things. I thought were gonna be actually very different and it's actually not this rigorous framework. That's not, you should be doing this much resistance training, this much aerobic activity. You know this much kind of consistency every day it's actually more about the enjoyment that you're getting and i think it's really interesting to kind of hear that as like the kind of the final point to this because i think a lot of people will be going well, what is it that i need to, do to get healthier or smarter or better and we can get very fixated on some numbers and on the other side of things it can also kind of exclude people a lot and i, and I read this and i read this because it was mental health awareness week and you you popped it on your um your instagram about you know the importance of mental health and the inclusion that it brings and I was really fascinated to find that 60%, so over half of people find it a barrier to doing movement because of the word exercise. And so it's, it is really interesting, isn't it? Like if I think about some of the exercises that I might go to that were in London or, or when I lived in New York, it's quite terrifying when you walk in. And I went to one recently that had a rowing class, one that, you know, I'm not a rower, but I thought, okay, it's this hit class. I'll try It's predominantly rowing. Probably the second time I've done a kind of a rowing machine. And I was so overwhelmed, but also kind of like out of the loop where everyone knew what they were doing. And I kind of didn't really want to go back to that class because I felt actually quite excluded from kind of like the people that were there. Not from anything they've done, but just from the intensity. So kind of reading that staff, someone who is actually very physically active themselves, you know, I really resonated with that. And I thought it was really actually important to read that stuff because it's a lot higher than I think some people might realize yeah, it's
0: really important that we're inclusive and we make all people feel that we can take part and you know even though I know you know a good amount about exercise and physical activity and how important it is for me to doing and I want to be consistent is you know I'm, I'm in Cyprus and I've been here for two weeks now and you know when i go into a new gym I don't know where the equipment is and then there's like people who look you know incredibly aesthetically amazing who are lifting really heavy weights and you know, naturally feeling a little bit nervous and a bit, you know, anxious. Even though I've been into loads of gyms. I know this stuff. And then the first thing that I do is go and use the machine. And I'm, you know, I'm using it and thinking, I hope I'm not trying to use this. I'm sort of trying to use it. And then the, like the guy comes up and says, "Brenda," i you know, my name, but he said, "You're not using this. You know, you're using this right. Be careful how you do this." And I just all of a sudden I was like, "Oh my gosh!" But um, yeah, it's just letting go a lot of that stuff because uh, you know it can be intimidating and terrifying going into certain environments. It's important that we're inclusive and. You know, myself, I'm a, I'm an able-bodied white man. And, you know, I you know I acknowledge that I have many less barriers than most people.
1: Yeah, I understand. I think it's just so important to like reference these moments because even us who, should, who have so many less barriers than most people feel that. So I'm kind of thinking, well, actually, it's so important that we do make sure that we are talking about exercise. And it's interesting, one of my seven pillars, and you've touched upon a lot today, sleep. I actually use the term mindful movement because I think that's actually a really encompassing term that actually is being mindful of our movement. And that's how I've kind of um, called the exercise pillar, which is really important, but actually exercise to me, even for me, felt like a barrier. So let's come on to our last question. I know that you've done a lot of work on this area and you've recently released an umbrella review which is one of the largest studies to examine the risks and benefits of cannabis and CBD in humans. So I want to talk just a little bit about this. because I thought it was really, really important just to include in today's conversation, because you did see some potential benefits. So I'd love for you to share the results here that you found.
0: So there's obviously a lot of interest in uh, you know, cannabis, CBD, and all of those uh, products in terms of the you know, the potential benefits within, you know, traditional medicine and, you know, if you go into some other, you know, factors as well, you know, we see CBD may be using lots of products and there's lots of claims about the health benefits of, you know, CBD products or cannabis. It can help with very long lists of things if you go in and listen to people and you go and read things. And we were really interested in what does the actual evidence say and what does the evidence say when we, you know, we apply strict framework and what's been done and published So we looked at everything that had ever been published in a randomized clinical trial where they'd compared, you know, a a cannabis product for a health outcome or like CBD or or one of the other sort of closely linked products versus a placebo. So the best medicine, you know, the best sort of clinical trial and everything that had ever been published, you know, we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people taking part in trials, all sorts of conditions, all sorts of health outcomes. And then we apply lots of sort of stringent criteria to say, you know, how good is the effect really within this and does it stay there or is it altered when we look at risk of bias and and other things that we're interested in. And essentially in in this paper in the BMJ, which was out very recently, is we found that there are some, you know, potential benefits for things such as like pain. We may see some improvement in pain for people. We may see some improvements in sleep, but we need to be, you know, sort of concerned, you know, sort of concerned, but sort of aware that there may be some Uh, you know, potential side effects as well, because um, certainly if I go and speak to people about the benefits of CBD, I just hear lots about the benefits, but we don't hear about the potential side effects. So, you know, people can have, you know, quite upset stomachs or people can have you know, other sort of adverse events, and we really sort of did this big mapping exercise to say where there is some good evidence and where there is some good evidence of potential adverse events. And some people can have adverse events. Um, so I'd encourage people to look at that paper in the BMJ because it's a very complex paper and a bit too sort of. Uh, I can't go into lots of detail now.
1: <laughs> but would you say on the terms of CBD because it is something that's become? I know there's a lot more regulations coming in, especially within the UK, on CBD. But I do think it's again a very nuanced area of yes, as you said, there is some potential benefits. But is there any kind of guidance that people can be looking for if they're looking at products around CBD? Is there any kind of guidance on the milligrams we should be taking or certain groups that shouldn't be taking it that you can kind of guide us through just to give us some guidance here around CBD because it's such a big market and there's so many products and I just do think there's enough education in this area. Yeah.
0: No, I, I quite agree. Well, I think the sort of the, the, the key messages are is is we're Compared to when I go and speak to people is the benefits are nowhere near as strong. You know, we can see some improvements, uh, you know, in terms of like nausea, in pain and spasticity. So people who have really sort of tense muscles and conditions, for instance, like cerebral palsy. But we can see what we call adverse events such as, you know, such as increasing gastrointestinal upset stomach for people too, nausea, vomiting. I think the the sort of key evidence is that we're not really sure about the optimal dose for many medical conditions. And I think it's important, you know, based on all of this evidence, and we looked at everything that had ever been published, 101 meta-analyses, which each had lots of randomised controlled trials, is that in terms of the treatment of medical conditions, I think it's a really nuanced discussion and debate. And I think if you're really looking to have the treatment of a medical is I don't think we've got really compelling evidence you know, for specific doses for most people. I think it's an emerging field. I'm not going to speak to your medical practitioner. you know, And if that is an area of interest to you, someone who has expertise in CBD, who can make recommendations around that. So uh, that would be my recommendation.
1: Yeah, because it's really interesting. I think a lot of people are searching for CBD that don't have, I would say like mental health conditions, it's more around sleep and those kind of things that people are starting to... To turn towards cbd for and i think it's one of those one of those things where i'm sure there's many products that are actually like very robust and this and do it very very well and there's lots of other ones that are very fatty and very trendy and actually can be very misleading and so it's going to be an interesting scope i think of, of kind of where this goes i so interested that you did that study so lastly brendan what i'd love to leave this with and i ask all of my guests the same question and we have for the first time a couple of weeks ago, somebody answers the same for the first time in 200 episodes. So I wonder what yours is going to be. The question that I ask all of my guests is, Brendan, what does live well, be well mean to you?
0: Live in the moment and be happy.
1: God, that was like so synced and so quick. It's like you already knew I was going to ask you that question.
0: No, I didn't. <laughs> like, seriously, I had no idea, but that's what it means.
1: You came out so live quickly in the moment with and, that.
0: and be happy.
1: I love that. Well, you are. You're living in the moment. Yeah, You're I on no Cyprus. idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, there yeah, we well, go. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And honestly, this conversation has inspired me, as I'm sure it has inspired many of our listeners, to try and keep that consistency with exercise going trying to you know release the shame and just trying to kind of engage in movement as much as possible i would absolutely love to have you back on the show when you release that study at king's looking at the gut microbiome and kind of the effects with exercise and movement and mental health that that sounds absolutely fascinating and i'm sure many of our listeners would love to kind of know the results of that as well thank you so much for the time that you spent we will try and link all of the studies mentioned into the show notes as i'm going to read on these a little bit more and um and yeah thank you so much for your time today
0: Thank you so much.